The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. We're going to kick things off though uh, this hour uh, by coming back to the discussion around the COVID inquiry. So more and more detail beginning to emerge about what it might look like and how it might be carried out. And plenty of people have been getting in touch right throughout the show on this issue. Uh, like Brian, who suggests it would be a typical Irish talking shop. No one will be wrong. Everyone was wonderful. Lessons will be learned. And a shrug of the shoulders. Ah, sure look it. Somebody else says, neither the media or political opposition is mature enough for a meaningful inquiry into anything. And Dan in Cork says, I say the government can't wait for this inquiry, given we had the fourth lowest death rate in the world behind New Zealand, Norway and Iceland. Bring it on before the election, is what they might say. Says so it, Dan. Anyway, Dan, thank you for the text. 87 1400-106. Kingston Mills is with me now, the Professor of Experimental Immunology at Trinity College, Dublin, and Mervyn Taylor, the CEO at Sage Advocacy. Uh, you're both very welcome, uh, gentlemen. Uh, Kingston, what issues would you like to see examined by any inquiry? I think the inquiry has to be all about informing um, how we could have done better if we, you know, if another pandemic comes along. So it's learning lessons for the future. And it's the bigger picture issues rather than the small minute. If we get into every minute detail of what happened, the thing will go on for 18 months. I'm I'm shocked to hear that they're talking about an 18-month inquiry. I would have hoped this could take a few months and would be over very quickly. And the key points would be discussed, but not every minute of what happened. I mean, there were obviously mistakes made um, and you know we need to be able to uh, respond quicker but remember this was sort of first time we had exposure to a global pandemic there had been an influenza pandemic in 2009 but didn't have the extent or reach of the COVID pandemic so it's something very new for the country to have to deal with but we need to be better prepared next time in terms of how we handle it. Have you a view as to whether the inquiry should be held publicly or in private? I think it's important that it's open and that people have a chance to, to um, you know, hear what has been said. But at the same time, I would not like to see a tribunal-type inquiry where everyone has legal representation. Then it is going to get very, very protracted. And um, it's not really going to be helpful because we, what we want are experts to assess what decisions were made and whether we could have made decisions that might have been better and what we did well and what we didn't do so well. And, and, and it's really about the lessons learned rather, rather than about apportioning blame to people who may not have made the right decisions, um, remembering that everybody was under pressure and mm-hmm. didn't really know at the beginning what they were dealing with. There were some issues later, particularly around testing, mask wearing, where we might have done better than we should ha- than we did do. And, and, and those are certainly lessons that we could learn for the future. It'll be a difficult balancing act, won't it, to, to, to examine those issues without going down the kind of the witch hunt route or turning into a kind yeah, of Yeah, I mean, obviously, inevitably, there will be a bit of, of I mean, everybody, you know, that, that, that was involved, um, uh, you know, from government right down to, to the frontline workers um, will have a very different opinion on how it was, it was um, handled. And I, th- and I think it's important that, you know, there is reasonably broad representation of opinions uh, in this uh, committee, but you can't have every person who feels that they were affected having an opinion. I understand there's going to be written submissions and, you know, that could result in a huge volume of, of paperwork for the inquiry team to, to wade through. So it's not clear to me how it's not going to get incredibly mm. protracted. And I think that won't be in anyone's interest 
for it to be protracted. Well, Kingston, stay with us, because as I mentioned, Mervyn Taylor is on the line as well, the CEO of Sage Advocacy. Uh, Mervyn, what are the issues or the issue you would most like to see uh, uh, examined by an inquiry? Well, firstly, I tend to agree in the main with what Kingston has said. Uh, We want to avoid witch hunts, but I don't know if uh, we need to go too worried about witch hunts. I think fundamentally it's about learning. But there is also needs to be some time and space for a clearing of the air because a lot of uh, myths have built up uh, over the period of the COVID pandemic and since then. And some of those, I think some people need to be disabused of those and learn uh, the truth comes in, you know, from many different perspectives. Um, from our point of view as a national advocacy service for older people, I mean, we certainly think that there's a need for the voice of the families of nursing home residents. But there's also, bear in mind that they are the families, there was a huge impact on some and uh, nursing home residents, many of whom uh, were in places where there was quite a number of deaths. Um, and we should we tend to talk around the nursing home residents as if they didn't exist. It was purely the families. Both need uh, to, to, to be heard. And I appreciate that some might not be in a position to, to speak now at this stage about it. The other thing we need to hear about, because there is learning from, from, from hearing people's experiences, is, for example, the experience of five staff sharing the same accommodation while working across a number of nursing homes part-time and in supermarkets, a perfect recipe for infection. We need to be, you know, you can say this is just an anecdote, but through stories like that, you start getting to moments of truth. And one of them is about the cost of accommodation uh, and people working in health-related facilities. Mm. Um, so that, you know, there, there is learning there. There's also, we need to listen to what the, the management of care facilities, what their experiences was, because there were some really good care facilities that uh, we are aware of. And some of the best experienced some dreadful number of deaths. Um, and they had done everything literally that they could. Yeah. Um, from our point of view, I mean, my abiding memory of the period is of people ringing us out of their minds with worry because there was nobody available to answer the phones because they were so stuck for staff. And it was one of the pleas that we made to the HSE, which they did respond to um, when they went into some to help out some of the private nursing homes, was to put in staff to answer the phones to deal with the incredible fears that people had. And it was it's very often there might be nothing wrong but they're in the place, but there was nobody to answer the phone. Yeah. So the level of concern just built up hugely. Uh, um, and that, that's so a those, very good example of, of, of a lesson that we could learn dealing with the future pandemic. That's something like that, understandably in, in the kind of the fog of war, if we'll call it that, when everything is chaotic at the start, that gets forgotten about because it's not a kind of a, a, a life or death issue, literally. Uh, but it, but but we know it matters so much to families uh, that they can get information. So again, so I, I, I repeat myself, it's a kind of a good tangible example of a lesson to be learned. But would you have fears, Mervyn, that it just turns into a blame game? You know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And in the UK, you know, their terms of reference were all about kind of learning lessons and, and, and being forward looking. And it turned into a kind of a political perp walk. I uh, No, I appreciate there's a kind of, um, the, there's a, 
a problem in the way Britain is approaching it. But bear in mind, they have a, a particular set of political circumstances mm. there, and there's an awful lot of axes to be buried in people's backs <laughs> uh, at the moment. Um, and, you know, when you're debating about WhatsApp uh, messages being lost, the whole purpose of the thing has been lost, in fact. Um, so I'm not, I don't, I don't, we're in a different island and we're in a different planet in many respects. I think that there's a need for learning. One of the things that concerns me is not about the witch hunts, but is actually about the ability uh, to see the future, but also to get to move towards that future. For example, the expert group on nursing homes talked in one of the major recommendations about the need to develop alternatives to the traditional models of, say, nursing home care. Now, new design ideas can help us fight infection and also promote human connectedness when the next pandemic comes, and the next pandemic will come. We don't know what it's going to be, but it will come. So there's a need for kind of innovation funds to help us move towards these new models, you know. And that's my my real concern is that you just simply describe and you say, here's the learning, but there's no roadmap to how we're going to get towards those things mm. because I've seen too many reports now which have said we need to move towards a new approach, but we don't see the roadmap and the funding to say this is how we're going to get to the new approach. Yeah, I, I mean, we, we don't necessarily need uh, to wait for an 18-month inquiry to conclude to, to improve systems. Is there any indication that were it to happen again tomorrow or at any point between now and the, the end of any inquiry, Mervyn, that we are better equipped, that the nursing home sector would be better equipped, would be treated in a better way? I think there's been a fair amount of learning or a sense of talking with nursing homes, public and private, is that there has been some learning and that there is better collaboration. But I, I, to be honest with you, I feel that the asset test is this. There are new HSE regional health structures emerging, six of them shortly, under Slanticare. The question is, will the other providers who are outside of the HSE, such as the private nursing homes, the GPs, the pharmacies, will they be brought in as part of that um, wider provision of health and social care? Because what happened during the pandemic was essentially that we had outsourced so much that when the, the I mean, we had a situation where HICWA was selling, sending a list of nursing homes that was concerned about to the Department of Health who were sending them to the HSE who had no knowledge of them whatsoever. They weren't integrated in their structures in, in any way. So you had not just social distancing, but you had sectoral distancing. So there's still a problem, and I really is emphasise this problem. There is still an issue about clinical governance. We still do not uh, have a situation whereby the HSE has good, strong clinical links and governance across all the uh, providers. Uh, Kingston Mills is is still with us. Uh, Kingston, wh- wh- when our lockdown continues beyond mm, the kind of the, 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 the same lockdown, similar lockdowns in other countries, ours lasted longer and was more severe than, 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 than comparable countries in Europe. Um, there was no shortage of people who had suggestions as to why that was. A lot of them were that, you know, the government were terrified of, of Neffet and their kind of cabinet was populated by cowards and that Tony Holohan uh, was some sort of dictator who wanted to control the country. I mean, the reality w- was actually slightly more depressing. It was that our hospital system was just creaking at the seams before COVID came and we didn't have enough ICU capacity, which meant we couldn't tolerate 
COVID in the society to the same degree other jurisdictions could without becoming overwhelmed, which is why we needed yeah. a, a longer lockdown. I mean, has that improved? Um, no, it hasn't, unfortunately. And, I um, mean, you know, even with the, the RSV um, issue recently with children's hospitals were, were overrun and we know we're very close to the situation again in, in our adult hospitals with a combination of, of, of flu and COVID which is putting you know, continued pressure on, on the healthcare system. So you're absolutely right that the, um, the, the reason for the more severe and prolonged lockdown in Ireland was is to protect the healthcare system which was already under pressure even before COVID arrived but having said that countries that didn't lock down as much and UK would be one example you know they did have more more deaths from COVID per head than we had so there, there was a benefit in in what, what what was done it was you know it, 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 it was probably more draconian than it was necessary here but I think um, you know it, it it was felt at the time it, that it was necessary because mm-hmm. of the, the the pressure on the healthcare system yeah and it's interesting I, I know Sweden have already concluded their inquiry and it's often held up as an exemplar uh, the the lack of restriction they had in that country but their own medical experts have concluded that by and large they got things right but actually they could have done with slightly stricter rules. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, Sweden was one of the one countries that had the, the most liberal view to this and, and the least stringent mm. lockdowns in, in Europe. Um, and, and if you look at their excess debt rate based on the, that OECD report, it was actually not a lot higher than, than Ireland. So, you know, they, they did, you know, there, there are two arguments here. And of course, the healthcare system in Sweden would be a lot better than Ireland in terms of ICU capacity and hospital capacity. Mm. So they didn't have that pressure that we had. All right, well, listen, we'll have to wait and see uh, exactly what the terms of reference will be. But as I said, uh, a bit more detail emerging today. It's going to be a long inquiry. Uh, They're talking about up to 18 months. Uh, It is looking like it's going to be public. There are those who think it should be private so that maybe people will be more willing to air their dirty laundry um, if they're not worried about repercussions. We'll have to wait and see in that regard as well. Kingston, thank you for joining us. Kingston Mills is Professor of Experimental Immunology at Trinity College Dublin. And Mervyn Taylor is the CEO of Sage Advocacy. This listener says it'll be a witch hunt based on conspiracy theories, rumours and misinformation. So little faith uh, in the COVID inquiry. Eilish in NACE says, I'm just wondering if there will be any talk about how our extensive lockdowns affected a large number of our population, including elderly people who effectively left were left in their homes. People who had no jobs or income, children not going to school or allowed to socialise in any way, young people losing a lot of their formative years. I understand some of this was required, but I do feel that questions need to be asked and I haven't heard any mention of that today. And one more for the moment. It sounds like nobody wants this inquiry. Next time around, just get the masks on straight away and roll out antigen testing ASAP. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from four on News Talk.